Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Some of you know that I was an art minor in college. I uh, actually went to Bryn Mawr to take courses in art. Uh, Eastern University didn't offer any. Uh, I really love um, sketching and drawing and oil painting and, uh, and trying to paint in watercolors, though it never really works out. Uh, and maybe it's because I have some artistic awareness. I think it's really repulsive when artwork which often represents the apex of culture, when artwork is um, deliberately vandalized. Uh, you may know that in 1972, Michelangelo's Pietà, the statue of the Blessed Mother holding uh, the, the crucified, now dead Christ, uh, it was smashed to pieces by a maniac uh, who hit it with a sledgehammer. In 1974, the Mona Lisa was spray painted in 1975, Rembrandt's painting, Night Watch, was slashed by a butcher knife. Uh, 1970s was just a bad time for art, I guess. <laughs> but then in 2022, uh, that great year of enlightenment, uh, activists threw a tomato soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers. Uh, I myself experienced a little bit of vandalism when I was in seventh grade. We had to read Where the Red Fern Grows. Some of you have read it. Some of you have pretended to have read it. And uh, you could have chosen any sort of project to represent some of the main ideas of the book, and I decided to do an oil painting of the farm and the mountains behind it and the red ferns. And, uh, and I, it, it took weeks, you know, because it was an oil painting, and oil is a challenging medium because it's... Uh, it's never steady. It can change uh, very easily because the paint takes forever to dry. Well, I found that the next day after it was turned in, somebody had ripped it in half, ripped the canvas in half. And, uh, and I, I felt that not only did they damage the project, there was something about me that got damaged in that process too, but what I want to say more broadly is that uh, we are all uh, works of art that have been vandalized. Every single person here, every single person you know is vandalized uh, by fallenness, by the, the cruelties of this world. And what I really want to underscore in this sermon and what the psalm, Psalm 8 underscores, is a beautifully high anthropology. So what I want to give you as a gift in this sermon through the word of God is a little more dignity and that you walk out of this place with your head a little higher today. Uh, and so I want to <clears throat> talk about ourselves like we are works of art, because according to God, we are. But I think after so much vandalization, uh, we can forget our true identity. Well, Psalm 8 is here to repair the vandalism of the world. Uh, Psalm 8 is here to remind us who we really are and who God ultimately really is. So Psalm 8 is about the great creator and the creator's royal family. So that's what I'm going to be speaking about tonight. So the great creator. So let's take our bulletins, open them to Psalm 8 so we can really consider the genius that is this passage together. Now, Psalm 8 
you, may, you might note, begins and ends in the same way. Now, this is called an inclusio. An inclusio, it's a structure that's frequently found in poetry and certainly in the Psalter, which represents a lot of poetic impulses, in which you frame your whole um, uh, hymn with the, the, the same idea at the beginning and the end. And it's, O Lord, our governor, or another translation, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the world. Now, the structure here is intending to inform us about the content of the psalm, really the middle of the psalm. And the, the idea of this psalm is basically this, uh, that all the world, all the world pulses with praise every waking moment of its uh, creator. Creation cries out. Uh, Jesus believed the same thing, by the way, when he was uh, being heralded into Jerusalem and people were really upset with the noise, right? They violated noise ordinances and told everybody to shut up. And Jesus said, well, if they keep quiet, even the stones would cry out. There was a sense of the rightness of creation, all of creation, um, echoing the refrain of God's name and his might. And this whole psalm, from beginning to end, is rich in creation language. This is a reflection upon the opening chapter of the Bible. It's Genesis 1, just in poetic form, rich in creation language. In, in fact, much of the language in Psalm 8 is simply lifted from Genesis 1. That's why we quoted it in tonight's service. Uh, everything from the elements of the story, like the heavens, the moon, and the stars, having dominion, that language, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that's just Genesis 1 language. But the idea behind this passage, this psalm, is that all of these things, from the fish to the clouds, every atom of creation, sings a testimonial tribute to its maker. And verses 1 and 2 really underscores that point. So let's read it. Verse 1b. You have set your glory above the heavens. So that's quite high, yes. Uh, and out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained strength. Uh, so he starts from the heavens, right? Now the heavens in the Bible is a complicated term. It could mean just simply the sky. But it says above the heavens here, so it probably ha is trying to give us a metaphor for that as God's distinctive realm of supernatural immediacy and presence. And that everything within God's haven of presence, within God's heavenly sanctuary, sings praise to God. So everything that's the highest thing, things you can't even imagine, right? No eye has seen, no ear has heard kind of stuff. And then he gets really earthy that even babies, even babies who crawl around on this dirt or this red carpet tonight, even they in their uh, sweet babbling are praising their creator. So the idea is everything that is lofty, everything that seems lowly, and everything in between the poles is praising the creator. And so Psalm 8 reminds us in so many ways of who is at the center of everything, the great inevitability the great inevitability, which is God, right? Um, this is the blessed seduction of creation, by the way. The blessed seduction of creation is that it always lures us back when we see it aright. It lures us back, back to our origins, back to the ground of being, back to our royal source. And according to scripture, 
We only flourish in life if we understand ourselves not to be the measure of all things. Man is, in fact, not the measure of all things. Uh, God is the measure of all things. And if we understand ourselves as under the ultimate authority of the one who is the genius behind black holes and dark matter and stars and the Pacific Ocean and your mother-in-law and you, if we understand that, that that's the genius under whom we live and move and have our being, right? That's the one whom we live to serve, then life goes well. But if we understand ourselves to live apart from that, uh, life implodes like a dying star. Uh, remember, the, the, the proverbial wisdom from Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we begin without the presupposition of not just a higher power, but the highest power, we devolve, right? Um, uh, or to, to quote one theological wag, when we have nothing supreme above us, uh, we succumb to what is worst within us. Uh, and so this psalm begins and concludes with a praise to Almighty God for being the great governor, the great Lord over all the, the, uh, the forms of creation. But then uh, this psalm spends the bulk of its material actually speaking about us. Now it gives God the credit, but now, uh, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, we're going to hear a little bit about human beings within the great economy of God's creation. Because this psalm actually asks and then answers a question. It asks a central question. In fact, it's the only question in this passage, grammatically speaking. What is man? What is man? A lot of philosophers have spilled a lot of ink over that question. A lot of biologists have spilled a lot of ink over that question trying to answer it. What is man? Well, in verses uh, four through five, the psalmist uh, speaks almost with some gray tones or darkened tones. You could even say negative, though I wouldn't say that. So, when I consider your heavens, even the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? Right. And this is a profoundly um, universal uh, uh, experience. Uh, that is, whenever you uh, are seated before, stand before something grand, and you are awestruck by the numinous quality that's localized in what you're seeing, sometimes you are rather undone and feel very, very small. For some of you, it was seeing the Pacific Ocean. For others, it's the Grand Canyon. For others, it's when you hold your first child. For others, it's when you saw your bride walking toward you. Uh, but something in creation that absolutely stirs you, makes your jaw drop, and you're just shocked by what you see. Um, what is man uh, that you are mindful of him? In other words, compared to you know, the comets and the atmospheric spectacles and the tides and the brontosaurus, what are we? The vastness of what we see around us can make us feel inconsequential. You know, we're a flower quickly fading, a vapor, uh, or to quote one poet, our name is writ in water. It can feel that way. Uh, but then the psalmist develops the idea further. He starts to answer his own question, what is man? This is verse five through eight, verses five through eight. You made him a little lower than the angels 
to crown him with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever walks through the paths of the sea. Notice again the repetition of the Genesis language, uh, which, which communicates in a very unique way within the ancient world what human beings really are. Because in many of the ancient creation stories, human beings are sort of accidental um, runoffs from the violence of the gods, right? But in the Genesis account, human beings are uniquely imprinted with the image of God. And, uh, and this is, is um, back in this passage, in this reflection on Genesis. Um, you know, I think we have to notice how glorious it is that Genesis doesn't see human beings as, as accidents or the production of violence. Instead, it highlights us from the beginning with great dignity, and not just some of us, but all of us. This, Genesis speaks a universal word. The, it's not a surprise that the first man was named man, right? Uh, or the first woman, mother of all living. There's a sense in which uh, um, these figures, these anthropological centers, represent something about every one of us. They are created in the image of God. In other words, it's not just priests, it's not just kings, it's not just rich people, it's not just people with property, it's not just men, it's men and women together created in the image of God in Genesis. That's a completely new idea in the world, that is when it was written. No one thought that, except the Hebrews, who were given that idea via inspiration. And it comes back here in this place that human beings created with this essential dignity as reflectors of the heavens. In fact, this text is so bold, it says, that humans have a higher dignity than anything else in creation. In other words, human beings are worth more than the Alps. The Alps might impress you more visually, but a human being is far superior ontologically than anything else you're going to see in nature. In fact, the psalmist says that we were made a little less than angels. It doesn't say angels, not in the original text. Do you know that? They always, they seem to mistranslate this one a lot. I think it's deliberate. Um, it's, the word is Elohim. It's a little lower than God. Right? That his image bearers are made a little lower than him. That's what the text says. And also that humans have this... Um, not only an ontological posture and position that is greater than all the other creatures, we are given a higher responsibility than all the other creatures to rule, to have dominion on God's behalf, in God's world, to tend to his world, and to rule over all other things that are under that dominion, under God's dominion. God does not say this to anteaters. He does not say to the anteater, have dominion over all things. Um, Instead, he saves that compliment for those who bear and reflect his image. Uh, one theologian amongst us calls our position ruled rulers. I like that very much. Ruled rulers, that we are under the authority of Almighty God, who sets us aright, and then we have dominion over various spheres within the created order. And what's more, this status of ruled rulers is ordained by God. It's not accidental. It's not just biological development. This is God-ordained. Uh, writing about God and his creative capacity, the psalmist says, you, you, God, made him little lower than God. You made him have dominion. You put all things under his feet. Right? Now, we just ordained David to the presbyterate yesterday. 
The word ordination, originally from Latin, comes from the notion of ordering things for an institution's well-being. That David was set aside for the task of word and sacrament, and we prayed that he would have the Holy Spirit and the power to be able to fulfill that business for which he's been set aside. But all of us within the created order have been ordained by Almighty God in a certain sense. We are all ordained to be image bearers unlike the rest of the created order with responsibility for the well-being of the created order. Your dignity and authority, friends, is just as ordained by God as gravity itself, in fact, more so. Now, we know the rest of the biblical narrative that uh, the lights went out in Georgia pretty quickly. Uh, Genesis 3, we decided to abdicate our thrones, abdicate our positions in the royal family, and to give our seat to a snake. Uh, or to quote Romans 1, we listen to the creature rather than the creator. So we then, after that point, begin to misuse our authority. We still have authority, but now we use it uh, in our flesh for all sorts of destructive, coercive, manipulative ends. We use the very talents we have uh, to create out of the world a veritable hellscape in which we abuse and use and take advantage and lie, crib, all of it. We vandalize the world in our fallenness. We take the good things and make them bad. We take the beautiful and make them crass. But then enter not the first Adam, who made a hash of it, but the second Adam, who was able to bring recovery to that which is vandalized. The second Adam, you know, Jesus never abdicated his authority to a viper, even though he was tempted to do so. He kept it. He kept his authority and he evidenced it. He had authority in his words. He had authority over the creation, the winds and the waves. He had authority over the law, authority over sin, authority over death, and eventually his reign will manifest itself over the all, uh, over the vandalized world. Or to quote 1 Corinthians 15, which also reflects Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That ultimately, Jesus is the face as well as the fulfillment of the urgencies within Psalm 8. He is the true human, the true Israelite, the one who has undamaged and undamaging authority, the one who uses his authority for the world's well-being in order to unmake our vandalized status. And so we have a great creator and his royal family that he has dignified. Um, I think, friends, that this is both a cure for our human hubris as well as a cure for our self-hatred. It's a cure for our hubris because uh, we ought not to think too highly of ourselves. Right? We ought not to assume thrones that do not belong to us. Um, or as the psalmist says, God, God is in his heaven and you are on earth, so keep, may your words be few. Uh, but it's also a cure for our self-hatred. I was talking with somebody before the service who said, you know, we tilt often in one direction or another. Sometimes to maybe mask our sin or our pain, we start sort of publicly adoring ourselves and wanting everybody to know how great we are. A lot of bragging, right? 
Other times we're, we're so sickened by ourselves that we can't think that, we can't think any good thought about ourselves. I think this passage cures some of those tendencies. But I do want to offer this now applicatory word about the vandalism as well as the recovery of God's royal family. That is, you and me. Friends, because we live within a fallen world and that fall is profoundly infectious, we ourselves can vandalize. We can misuse our God-given authority to vandalize ourselves or others. We vandalize ourselves when we tear ourselves down with horrific speech. People do this. Uh, they, I think sometimes they think they're communicating humility, but really they're taking a, a butcher knife to the, the portrait that God has painted. Other people, you know, they, it's, it's really just the narcotics that take the edge off, and that's how they harm themselves and the artistry within. Or they just drink way too much. Or they, um, they're, they're so afraid that people will see them for who they are that they start gossiping about everybody else so that nobody can see, right? Um, they're preventing intimacy. Uh, we, can, we can do this through all sorts of ways. We can vandalize ourselves. Um, but we can also vandalize others. Uh, and I use the image of vandalism because I think it captures the irreverent and anti-human quality of sin. Because when we take aim at others, when we vandalize others, that is, we vandalize the apex of God's glory, the ones that he's crowned with glory and honor, humans fashioned in God's likeness, and damage them, we are acting out of a satanic energy, a satanic energy that's anti-creation, anti-humane. A very kind person helped me to see this tendency in myself. I was very upset of course, uh, with a famous theologian who doesn't know me and I don't know him, but I was very upset with something that he had written. And I was going on and on about it. And the person was very gracious and very patient in listening to my diatribe. Uh, and I asked that person, hoping that they would join me in the negative tirade. Uh, I said, so what do you make of the author? And the person responded, well, I bet his mother loves him. <laughs> Oh, wow, was I just like uh, convicted. It was like white lightning in that moment, you know. I realized I was vandalizing a life. And not only vandalizing life, I was vandalizing a life like a coward. They weren't even there. They couldn't defend themselves. Here I am just breathing fire, you know, taking the butcher knife to the paint. We can vandalize. And sometimes we vandalize because we ourselves have been vandalized, and it's what we know. We've all been vandalized, everybody in this room, and we can so easily forget our God-ordained dignity. Sometimes it's the church, you know, focusing so much on sin and our current low anthropology that we forget our initial design was both lovely as well as mighty. Sometimes it's the slights and cruelties of life that make us feel minuscule, forgotten, ruined, polluted. I can say this as a minister who has, you know, I've been through some things, I've seen some things, and I've been with you now for, you know, 17 years. You know, I can say this with uh, full assurance that everyone in this room and everyone you meet is far more vandalized than you could possibly imagine. Everyone over a certain age is more vandalized than you could possibly imagine. Hurt by the parents who misunderstood us, the employers who snubbed us, the friends who betrayed us, the siblings who mocked us, the bullies who beat us. 
the mentors who doubted us, the pastors who shamed us, the relatives who abused us, the affection that we were all denied because it seemed like no one saw us. They were all too busy turning their eyes elsewhere while Christ was turning his eyes toward you, especially at you, always, because it all mattered, all of the pain, all of the slights, it all mattered, all of the vandalism was felt, and not only by you, but by the one who made you as well as saved you. And really it's him. He's the one who brings the recovery. Jesus causes us to recover. He exalts us. That's what he does with his authority. He doesn't break people down. He exalts us. He informs our darkened minds, disarms our chaotic affections, cures our infirmities, absolves our sins, and unmakes our damnation. And then he restores us to our rightful, royal place within the garden of his world. The Christian destiny is one of recovery. Jesus gives us back our dignity, our authority, and our place in a good creation. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, after all. So my encouragement to you is to pursue those things that humanize you within God's good design because you as an image bearer were made for many things that cultivate you and the world around you. Many things that can influence the spheres in which you have some authority. You as an image bearer, for example, were made to create as God has created, whether that's poetry or painting or design or sketching or cooking or writing articles or going to museums to admire what other people have created. You as an image bearer were meant to socialize. Scripture teaches that it is not good for a man to be alone, so our humanity tends to increase as we bond with other humans with whom we share an ontology. But also we have differences that we can learn from each other. So I encourage you to spend time with people who are not like you in terms of opinions or age. Play with children, listen to the elderly, be patient with bad waitresses. Uh, and begin to see your political and social antagonists as glorious image bearers who perceive the world differently. Also, you as an image bearer were made to be rational, to think deep thoughts, to articulate profound truths, to discover your blind spots and then seek to correct your vision, to write things, to speak things, and to think in a way that makes the world clearer and less chaotic. And you were made to be a moral being, as an image bearer, you were made to align and adore uh, God's moral design for the world, trusting that his definitions are ultimately for our well-being rather than the deformities and the dark architecture of sin. And you as an image bearer were made to worship, that is to sing, to pray, to listen to the word, to attach to an imperfect church that gives you the gospel of free grace through word and sacrament. As we do these things, engage in these ways and others, we can do a world of good in the world of God. For it is you that God chiefly loves. And because Christ bore a crown of thorns, you bear an undiminished crown of glory and honor. And because of Christ, the vandalism will be unmade. It's an absolute, it's a certainty. 
The broken pieces of the Pieta will be put back together. Van Gogh's sunflowers will be scrubbed clean. And even the red ferns will grow again. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your 